the creative process is hard. It's complex. It's ambiguous. We don't talk about those things. People think, oh, it's creativity. It's happy, la la, fluffy stuff. It's not. Mm. It's actually hard and challenging, but extremely rewarding and can help you see things in a new way and imagine things that you couldn't imagine before. You're listening to The Occupational Philosophers with Simon Banks and John Rice. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Occupational Philosophers, the not-so-serious business podcast that mashes up the world of curiosity, creativity, and a fair bit of philosophy thrown in each and every week. I'm joined by my co-host, John Rice. Hello, John. What's caught your eye this week? Well, I, I had a very interesting experience, Simon. Me and my wife, we went to London and we went to something called the Dream Machine. And this is off the back of a, uh, a thing by the University of Sussex, who are doing something called the Perception Census. And it's all about understanding how each of us very individually perceive the world. The way we perceive colours is different, the way we perceive sound is different, etc. So there's a census going on, which is testing all of that. And the dream machine is it all brought to life at this pop-up exhibition. And you go in and you sit in a dark room, and there was 12 of us in a dark room in seats with speakers behind our ears. And there's a white light just in the middle of this room. And they close it all off, it becomes pitch black. And then music starts, and it's a very sort of electronic music that starts with a various beat that changes. And at the same time, you close your eyes, and the white light pulsates, and it goes to time of the music, it goes up, it goes down, it goes fast, it goes slow. And with your eyes closed, you generate colours. And what happens is you generate a whole firework and visual <laughs> extravaganza behind your eyelids. And everybody generates a different extravaganza behind their eyelids. And in fact, I know this is not going to be good for radio, as they say, but here's what I saw. And I'm just showing this to camera. As you can oh, wow. Pretty yeah. full on. Purples <laughs> yeah. and yellows and blues and reds. But the only light being emanated from that light was white. I saw crystalline shapes. It was, it was like, I, I said afterwards, it said, what was it like? I said, it was like being at a Jean-Michel Jarre concert on acid. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever thinking. that might be like. <laughs> Not that you'd know. So I thought that was fantastic. I mean, it was it was the closest thing I suspect I would have had to something like synesthesia, you know, that the sounds were generating colours, which uh, obviously there's a percentage of people that have that kind of ability or they have that sense. But yeah, I thought that was amazing. My wife wasn't as keen. Okay, sure, sure. <laughs> I would have thought. She thought it was a rubbish idea for a date. So we're not doing that again. I would have thought she would have liked it, but uh, there you go. Now, is that based <laughs> on, do they give any sort of the science behind what's happening? There is or? there is a load of science to it. I will put a link in the show notes. I won't go into it all now, but yes, there is a studied effect. And it's quite incredible to the fact that the same sounds and the fact that white light can generate a absolute spectrum of different colours and patterns, and they ebb and flow and change constantly. Yeah, I, th I thought it was amazing. People are using it. They are sort of looking at this as a means of being a, something for people's mental health and well-being. There's, they relax. There's obviously there's grounding and breathing, etc. But they go into that and they come out lighter. You know, they're doing studies around how people feel as they come out of this kind of experience. And the results thus far are very good. So who knows? I might go back, but probably on my own. All right, sure. <laughs> 
about you? I like it. How about you, Simon? That was well, great. It was fantastic. Yeah. Mine was also to do with perception, but a little bit different to yours. Now, I have an iPhone, like many people do. Mine has a cover on it, but it's been very beaten up. I've left it on the car roof. I've driven off. Someone's called me up. I found your phone. So it's beaten up, and it's got the glass cover on it. And so that was all cracked. And the phone itself was very good underneath, but on the surface, it looked like beaten and mashed up. So I went and got a new cover and a new screen and it looked all of a sudden I go oh my god this this phone's amazing I've forgotten how good it was and then everything I was looking at all my other electronics started to look amazing I've got a relatively new MacBook but I'm started typing on this and I'm going oh this is brand like this feels like brand new I hadn't noticed how great the keys are so I thought well what's happening here and I had a little bit of a look at this and this is called the halo effect Now, the halo effect refers to the cognitive bias where our overall impression of a thing or a person influences how we feel about its character or properties. So when I got a new iPhone case, because it was positively influenced me, also my perception of not only the iPhone, but other things around me changed. Other technology. Yeah, or could it doesn't necessarily be limited to technology, but all of a sudden I thought, ah, oh, I've got a favorable view overall here. So all of a sudden it gave me a favorable view of other things and maybe pick up on things I might have been looking through a less than favorable lens, which is my wonderful MacBook, which is only a year old and in awesome condition. But all of a sudden I'm going, oh my God, the keys, they just click in this. So, <laughs> so there you go, the halo effect. Simon, we have a guest episode this show, don't we? We do. Um, so without further ado, maybe I should ask, who is the curious cat we have with us this week? John, well, we are, as always, in for an absolute treat. Our curious cat has studied, taught, and written about both the art, expression, and the science problem-solving of creativity for the last 25 years. As an academic, she has spent 20 years teaching deliberate creativity to undergrad and graduate students at the International Center for Studies in Creativity at SUNY Buffalo State University. Now, during her tenure, she was awarded the President's Medal for Excellence in Teaching, note, and co-designed and delivered a massive open online course on everyday creativity to over 60,000 participants. Currently the Vice President of Curiosity to Create and the co-founder of the Creative Thinking Network, She runs the highly successful Fueling Creativity podcast with Dr. Matthew Werwood. I hope I've got his name right. And she also has the Creativity, I hope I've got that right, YouTube channel with children's book author Barney Salzberg. Now, she's author of many books, Weaving Creativity into Every Strand of Your Curriculum, 20 Lessons to Weave Creativity into Creative Thinking into Your Curriculum, and My Sandwich is a Spaceship creative thinking for parents and young children, and has authored numerous articles as well, featured in the New York Times, Women's Health Magazine, and Women's World Magazine. Her goal is to bridge the gap between creativity researchers, practitioners, administrators, and educators, and move the conversation about creativity in education forward. Please give a huge virtual clap to Dr. Cindy Burnett. Woo! Thank Hello, you. Hello, Cindy. Thanks for having yeah. me. Welcome. Hello. Hey, Cindy. <laughs> What's caught so, your so, curious eye this week? What's caught my curious eye this week? Well, it has nothing to do with perception, although maybe it does. 
The thing that's caught my eye this week is what really matters in terms of what we're teaching our students right now. So I have a 13-year-old and a 15-year-old, and I'm looking at what they're learning in, in school. And most of the time, they're bored. And lately, I have found that there's been a lot of depression and challenging times amongst the community. So I'm not talking about my kids. I'm talking about the community of students that they're with. And I've been looking at how busy everyone has become. So as much as, you know, we hit the pandemic and everyone said, we're going to slow down once this is over. It's like now everyone's on double speed. And so I think the thing that's really caught my curiosity is what's going to really matter in terms of education when we think and project 10 years down the line. So for example, my daughter's writing an application for high school right now. And I'm looking at it and I thought, if I could run this through ChatGPT, it would be done in literally 30 seconds and it would sound way better than what she wrote. So do I need to worry? And do I need to worry about where her writing is at? Should I help her and continue to make sure she's got a robust curriculum and focus on that math and English that is so important here in the States? Or does it really matter? What really matters? And what do we really need to be teaching our students so that they have a happy-ish, healthy life that they contribute to society? What's going to matter in 10 years? That's what's really caught my curiosity in the last few weeks. Where are you in the world today, Cindy? Obviously, there's people listening in from different places, but uh, where are you? And what can you see out your window? I live in Grand Island, New York, which is a suburb right outside of Buffalo, New York. And if you walk outside of my house, you will see water. If you jump into that water, you will travel down and go over Niagara Falls. So that's where I live. (laughs) So be careful after a few drinks when you're sending your friends home. Okay, Don't go near the fence. (laughs) I think we know what what really matters then, Cindy, is swimming skills. Yes, swimming skills. (laughs) Now, Cindy, you've probably often been at a dinner party and you might go there, you might have been invited. Let's say you don't know that many people. You sit down at the dinner party and often those first questions might be a little bit boring, like, hey, what do you do? Or something along those lines. Someone goes, oh, I'm in procurement. And you sort of, oh, yeah. So, so John and I thought, imagine we're at a dinner party, but we're going to ask some questions mm-hmm. which are a little bit more, drive a little bit more conversation and sort of maybe get to some different ways of thinking and understanding uh, about that person. What's giving you joy at the moment? What is giving me joy? I love watching my own children develop into human beings. Like, full-on adult human beings. And as much as I dreaded these teenage years of parenthood, I think watching them and watching their preferences develop and watching their attitude and their interests and passions is one of the most rewarding things I could have ever anticipated. So I always thought having little children would be fun and you watch them grow and you watch them go over these developmental milestones. But I think it's even more so as they start to grow up and turn into individuals who are independent and on their own. Wow. You sound like a super mum, Cindy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's going on here? Everybody else goes, oh, I've got teenagers. I have teenagers as well. They're 12 and 14. And I'm probably experiencing some of that joy. <laughs> but also some of those things where you go, oh, gosh, they really are 
quite the moody teenager that, that everyone mm. <laughs> expects to emerge. But yeah, it's well, challenging. I think, and I think the challenging thing about that, John, is there's such a description of teenagers as being moody. And of course they can be moody because they've got lots of hormones. The fact of the matter is as adults, we can be moody and challenging and grumpy and we need some space. So when I find my children in that space, I try to just let them be and work through it on their own and just say, hey, I'm here for you. If you want some brownies, I'll cook you up some brownies. Otherwise, I'll give you a space that you need because sometimes it's just that because I know that's what I need as well. I'm sending my kids over to Buffalo. Yeah, this is great. <laughs> you, you should have stopped so, over while you were yeah. you were uh, backpacking yes, through Buffalo absolutely. this past summer. Yeah, my gosh. <laughs> So as well as having that joy from seeing your children develop, as, as you say, do you have some hobbies? Do you lose yourself in stuff? Just time for yourself? Do you go to the water and jump in and go over Niagara occasionally? Or Oh, dear, no. <laughs> I'm a lover of plants. Uh-huh. So this is a funny story. When I was in my academic position as a college professor, I tried to keep a plant in my office alive and I could not keep it alive. So when I left my position, I sort of retired from the academic world and I started working from home and working on my own creative work every day. I said, I'm going to keep a plant alive. That's my goal. Keep one plant alive. (laughs) Well, then I kept that one plant alive and then I had two plants and then I had three. And now I have 90 plants in my house. 90? Nine zero? 90. Nine zero plants in my house and I keep them all alive. And it is like my joyful space is something that makes me really happy. I can relate everything about growing plants to creativity. You know, like you grow a lot of seeds. Some of them grow big, some of them grow small. You need the right environment to grow them. You need to understand the environment in which they're going to thrive. Sometimes you grow a lot of seeds and all of them die and you just need to let it go and start again. So there's so many things. In fact, I was thinking this morning, I should write a book at some point about my relationship with plants and creativity because there's such an intersection, Mm. you know, giving it time to grow, not forcing it, giving it the things that they need. What happens when you put one plant in a site that you're always looking at? And what happens when you put the plant in a corner that you don't go into that room and what happens to that plant? So it's just really interesting to me. And I, I love watching how plants emerge. In fact, I went into my husband's office today and I was like, oh my gosh, what's happening to this plant right now? It's growing something. He's, what do you think it's growing? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know if this thing grows flowers or if it's an extra weed. It's just always fun if, to look at. If, if, on that note, uh, Sydney, can you tell me what the hell this is? Because I don't know what it is. That is an aloe vera plant. Hey, very good. Right, there we go. And it definitely needs to be repotted. Yeah. <laughs> I knew you'd I knew you'd catch me out. Yes. I, yeah. I'm probably not as attentive to those plants as I might do. Do you do any bonsai? I don't do any I don't have any bonsai and I'm I'm terrible with succulents. Do you know why? Because succulents need very little attention. They're like cats. Uh-huh. So Perfect. You just you don't give succulents any attention except for once in a while when you think they might need it. But I kill them all because I just give them too much love, which is too much water. (laughs) In Australia, we often have things on the news where police have raided someone's house for 90 plants, but that's uh, that's that's another story. (laughs) Now, (laughs) who or what inspires you now? Who or what inspires me now? I work for an amazing organization called Curiosity to Create. And I work for a president. Her name is Katie Trowbridge, and she has really been inspiring me every day. I love working for this organization. 
because she has the same mission I do. She calls me her creativity and education soulmate. And she has 23 years of experience in education. And when I talk with her about the research around creativity, she's able to balance out my research with the practical applications of what it looks like. And that is really inspiring to me because it's something I'm so passionate about. And what are you curious about right now? I imagine that you're continuously learning, but you got any big questions you're wrestling with at the moment, Cindy? Aside from the what matters question? Yeah. Yeah, I suppose that was that's quite a significant question, but that is the biggest one that that keeps I think the other big question that I've been wrestling with is I truly believe that all schools and all students need to learn how to think creatively and be able to solve problems creatively. And when I talk with schools and they think I don't need that, I get really frustrated and I don't understand why. So that's another big question I'm I'm wrestling with is what is the disconnect? Is it because we automatically assume that creativity is related to the arts, which is often the case, right? So oftentimes when I go and I speak with administrators, they think, oh, well, we're not really creative. We don't do the art stuff. And I'm like, no, it's not about just the arts. It's about thinking and it's about independent thinking. And this is what we're going to need as we channel these changing times. So if we think about creativity as a generation of new and useful ideas, that's essentially change. So what we're teaching students is how to manage change. And when people say we don't need that, I think, why? (laughs) (laughs) So I don't know where the disconnect is. And that's something I've been thinking a lot about. Yeah. And we'll dive into this a little bit later, because I think to a large extent, that's the crux of this show and unpicking some of that. Now, just to wrap out our dinner party, how would you describe what you do and or another way of uh, thinking about it, if you sit in the middle of three or four things that cross over, mm-hmm. what are those three or four things? When I'm at a dinner party and someone asks, what do I do? I say I teach deliberate creative thinking and creative problem solving, specifically with educators and also to students. So yesterday I had a chance to go in and work with a group of high school students on generating ideas and giving authentic presentations. So I really just enjoy talking with people about seeing things differently and seeing ideas and imagining possibilities, because I think that with possibilities, we have hope for the future. So I like looking at things in a positive lens, not in a toxic positivity sort of way, like, oh, we all have to be happy all the time, because actually the creative process is hard. It's complex. It's ambiguous. You know, we don't talk about those things. People think, oh, it's creativity. It's happy, la la, fluffy stuff. It's not. Mm. It's actually hard and challenging, but extremely rewarding and can help you see things in a new way and imagine things that you couldn't imagine before. We're probably, again, as Simon said, come to it in in the heart of the, the conversation, Cindy, but just that you say creative thinking, creative problem solving. Just pull those apart for a minute. What's the Where's the light in between those two? Creative thinking or creative problem solving? Is How do they differ in your mind? So creative thinking is, I would say, this is really the center of my conversation because creative thinking is not just about one thing. Do you want me to go into that now? Yeah, far uh, away. Yeah. Sure. Okay. <laughs> the party's going oh. well. Yeah. More wine. Think this is a very long yeah, dinner. More wine. Cancel, cancel the Uber. Right. <laughs> All right. Yeah, exactly. Strap in. So what is the difference between creative thinking and creative problem solving? So for a moment, I want you to think about a sport. So do either of you play sports? Yes. Mm. Tennis. Tennis. What do you play? Tennis. 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 Okay. 
in order to be a good tennis player, it's not just you're going to be a good tennis player. What are all the skills you need to have in order to be a good tennis player? Uh, a racket. And <laughs> that's not a, that's well, not that's, a that's skill, John, but anyway. What's the skill? <laughs> the skill of eyeball coordination. Uh, okay, what else? Um, the, the abilities to be able to sort of coordinate my body, to make a serve, to hit a shot, mm-hmm. to read what's the ball coming back to me and seeing the other mm-hmm. player and observing him. I could mm-hmm. go on, but I'm not that good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, strategy. That's probably why I keep it. losing. Yeah. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So the same thing is true with creativity. So it's not just about one thing. So people often associate creativity with generating lots of ideas, but it's not just about generating lots of ideas. It's about looking at things from different perspectives. It's about being curious, being open-minded, taking risks, embracing challenges. So I use a set of 20 creative thinking skills that are known as beyonder skills. And these beyonder skills were developed by creativity researcher, E. Paul Torrance, who was known as the father of creativity and education. And E. Paul Torrance died, unfortunately, in 2003. In his lifetime, he wrote over 1,800 journal articles and papers around creativity. But he looked at these beyonders, these people who went beyond in their fields. And what he found is that they had a set of characteristics and attributes. And those are the ones that I teach and I work with. So when I talk about creative thinking, I'm talking about being playful, enjoying and using fantasy, which is about imagination, being cognitively flexible, imagining things in the future. So that's the basis of all of the work that I've been doing. Creative problem solving. Now, it's interesting because when I got my master's degree at the Center for Applied Imagination at SUNY, which is, it's called the Center for Applied Imagination now, it teaches creative, deliberate creative problem solving. And we are actually the home of deliberate creative problem solving. So this process, which has been formulated over the last 70 years, initially by Alex Osborne and Sidney Parnes, and then later developed by many different researchers, too many to name. But this, the basis of this is that you identify what the problem is, that you generate ideas, that you develop solutions, and then you implement those solutions and come up with a plan of action. So creative problem solving is a deliberate process that we can take and teach our students on how to solve problems. And a lot of that comes from problem identification. Mm. It's very similar to design thinking. And there's lots of different problem solving methodologies out there, like appreciative inquiry and design thinking and lateral thinking, De Bono's work. So when you look at these different problem solving models, they have aspects of creative thinking, but they are not just creative thinking. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's, no, that's great. great I mean, yeah, fantastically. You've just drawn it out very clearly. Thank you. So Cindy, um, just want to get more into maybe the, the heart of the work that you do. And I note that your vision at Curiosity to Create is a world, and I'll quote now, where all educators and learners embrace fearless exploration, creative and critical thinking. And I suppose the key thing to kick us off with that is to say, look, why is this so important? And maybe is it gathering in importance? Is it more important now than it was 10 years ago? Is it more important now than 10 years ago? So I mentioned... E. Paul Torrance, and he wrote back in the 1980s an article about creativity having a quiet hum in education, and it still has a quiet hum. It's not making a lot of noise in education. 
And yet there's all of these different surveys, World Economic Forum, Adobe, IBM, that are all saying, we need our workforce to be creative problem solvers. We need our workforce to have complex problem solving, creativity, creative thinking. And yet the schools aren't changing. They're staying the same. And we are in this educational system that still looks so similar to the way that it was when we were students. And the world is not the same. I mean, I think we can all agree to that. The world is not the same and it's quickly changing. So I, I heard recently that ChatGPT is the team over there has recently said, it, you haven't seen anything yet because wait six months and things are going to be even more so accessible and easy to use. And honestly, I'm always amazed at what can be done now with AI and education. So what do we need our students to do? We, as I mentioned earlier, we need them to be able to manage that change. And I think if we can't help them navigate that change and to have the basics, right? We want them to have the basics, but we don't, we're not giving them what they really need for the future. So do I think it's more important? I thought it was important 25 years ago when I started in the field, but I think it's even more important now because as I look toward, and I mentioned my, my children, when I, when people talk to my daughter, they'll say to her, and she's 13, what do you want to do when you grow up? I think, how do we even know what the world is going to look like in 10 years when she enters the workforce? Because I don't think that we can determine just yet what jobs are still going to exist, especially with the release of of ChatGPT. I know I used to hire people under my own organization to help with things, and now I don't need to hire them because I can press a button and it creates information for me. So do we need them to be great writers leaving school? Do we need them to have high math skills? And and that's actually something my daughter brought up to me. She said, you know, mom, I just don't think school is going to prepare me for life. And I was like, okay, tell me more about that. And she said, well, I spent a lot of time in math. I don't understand when I'm going to need X plus this divided by that. She said, but they don't teach me anything about finances, about how to cook an egg how to build better relationships with others. She's like, why is there so much focus on academics when a lot of the times we're not going to need it and they're not teaching us the things that we are going to need to be successful adults? So I think she had a really good point and something I've been also curious about. Presumably there's there's some basics, some foundations of what's taught in terms of that, as you say, that academic focus that is necessary, that maybe does provide something as a a foundation to better thinking, whether that is critical Mm -hmm. thinking or creative thinking. So it's not an Mm -hmm. argument to sort of say that that needs to change completely, but it's just the overemphasis and the lack of drawing in of other things and life skills and and alike that actually might be them applying this thinking in ways that are actually going to be useful to them when they eventually grow up, become adults and function in the world going back to the original (laughs) thing with this weaving creativity into curriculum with your creative thinking skills what does it look like and how do you interact with educators learners and or the system because often i feel like the Mm -hmm. system is broken and not knocking any teachers Mm -hmm. who are currently in that system i think the the like the way we think around creativity is very loose fire away As I mentioned earlier about the creative thinking skills, so I I work with teachers and I say, okay, here's a set of creative thinking skills. Let's pick one. So let's just say curiosity. Let's look at the existing curriculum because content and knowledge 
is important. And as you mentioned, I think John mentioned earlier about being able to solve a math equation helps them be better thinkers. But if all you're doing is helping them trying to find the one right answer, that's not what life is often about, right? We know this in our own work, that oftentimes there's not just one right answer, there's multiple answers. And that these creative thinking skills will help you navigate and help you find maybe the best solution for you at that moment in time, right? So not the the one right answer, but the best solution that's going to work for you. So let's just take curiosity, for example. So oftentimes when students go home with work, homework, they're out to find, they have a sheet of paper and they're out to find maybe 10 answers. They read a passage, they have to find the 10 right answers, right? That's a very standard, typical homework. But what if we were to say to them, all right, I'm going to give you 10 post-its. I want you to read this passage and I want you to come up with 10 questions you have about this information. So you're getting them curious about and asking good questions or asking questions in general about the content that you're teaching. And then you bring those post-its to the next class. That's your assignment. And you start with those questions on the board and you say to your students, okay, here are your questions. Let's start working through those. Let's answer those questions. So it's getting them curious and it's giving them intrinsic motivation not to find the right answer, but to search for questions and to question things, which is such an important, not only creative skill, but a critical thinking skill to get them asking good questions. That's fantastic. I mean, again, for for me, uh, Cindy, this is very much the seed of this podcast was just the lack of curiosity that I would see within the organizations or teams often that you'd be working in where it was desperately Mm -hmm. needed. And it was A, that ability to be curious to ask questions rather than come with answers. But I was curious there as well, as you see, I'm curious, um, about the learning there. The, the double whammy is that they follow that curiosity. So they are motivated to learn because they've generated the questions that they think they would like the answer to. So they gain the knowledge having been motivated by their own curiosity and questions. Is that, that, that broadly is that's, that's the thing that unlocks it, isn't it? The motivation to learn. Yes, exactly. And how do you yeah. how do you interact with, let's say, the system? I'm doing air quotes here. How do, might you mm-hmm. interact with? Do you work on a personal one to one teacher levels so that we have the most impact, or is there something in policy or legislation or different things? Because this conversation seems to have been going on since the beginning of time. And you're also saying, as we spoke about before, World Economic Forum, like their latest survey, you know, what do we need? Creativity at the top. What's broken, if that's the right way to say it? How do we shift that needle? And we also, I'm sure you know Sir Ken Robinson and his famous YouTube talk as well. What's the big bit that might need to move from a system perspective? I think the shift away from such a strong, heavy focus. And, you know, we, as we were talking about that math and reading or math and literature, math and English, however you want to, there's such a focus on that for everything. The college board, you know, my son is in high school and he's starting to look at PSATs, SATs, and everything is focused on how well do you do in these two areas? And that just shows a small piece of the pie. You know, it's like looking at, at one part of a pie and saying, is this pie going to taste good based on the crust? It's like, but you haven't eaten the whole thing, right? You have to look at the whole thing. And I think it does need to happen at the policy level. In fact, I just received an email from a wonderful colleague and former student of mine this morning. And she said, I really want to start talking with policymakers about how we need to train all teachers in creative thinking and creative problem solving, because 
it could have such a positive impact. And PISA, which PISA, they are one of the international testing places. And some of the countries are now opting to test for creativity, I believe at the age of 15. That's also helping in some areas. But I think we need to have a better understanding of what creativity is. We need to help teachers recognize their own creativity. And it's funny because when I walk into a room of teachers and I say, how many of you consider yourself creative? I would say about half of their hands go up. And then I say, okay, let me ask you this question in a different way. How many of you have solved a problem in your classroom in the last week where something came up and you had to just figure out a solution for it? You couldn't just Google or ask your colleague what to do. You had to figure out and create a new solution for it. And all of their hands go up because that's what teaching is. Teaching is just a constant state of creative thinking. And for those teachers that don't make it in that field, it's often because they lack that ability to be flexible and to be open-minded and to find other solutions Mm. or because they're being mistreated, which is also a whole nother road that I don't want to go down, but that's very sad that they're not getting paid enough, that they're not getting enough respect. And that just makes me sad. But if we were to empower teachers to really, if we think about creativity in terms of possibilities, to give them possibilities, and we give them the agency to design their own lessons. I mean, they are the ones that know their students. If you take someone, and in the States, you have to have your master's degree to teach. So you take someone that has a master's degree in teaching and they understand their students and you give them coaching opportunities to help build their confidence in the classroom, you don't need to give them a script. That's one of my biggest pet peeves is when people come to me, they're like, do you have a script for this? I'm like, I'm not giving you a script. You have a master's degree. Yeah. (laughs) You have a master's degree. You are fully capable of coming. I can give you ideas. I can give you suggestions, but you also have to look at the context of your students. How old are they? What is their background? Are they having breakfast in the morning? Because if they're not having their basic needs met, they're probably not going to be able to think creatively or critically or in any way, right? Because we don't as adults think we are not able to think if we haven't had our basic needs met. So are they having their basic needs met? If they're not, then how do you overcome that? How do you work with the families? How do you bring the community in? There are just so many aspects of this that need to be evaluated and they need to have the teacher input to be able to do that. So another way of looking at this would be, you know, that creativity needs to be seen as a base level across every piece of the curriculum. So every teacher, whether you're maths or design or music or English, you need to be thinking, yeah, how can I bring this level of creativity, creative confidence, creative problem solving into my curriculum Mm -hmm. and proudly, I guess, embolden the kids to move in that direction? Yes. And building on that, Cindy, alongside creative thinking, creative problem solving, would there be other things that you would love to see brought into education such as philosophy and exploring philosophical thought or philosophical thinking as a as another means to build a better base for learners and students who are then going to go on and be able to manage change, navigate change, creatively think, critically think, etc. I think philosophy would be a great topic to be exploring in school. I love philosophy. I love taking my philosophy classes in college and I love pondering ambiguous and complex questions is 
one of my pastimes <laughs> when I go on walks with my husband every day. It's, you know, thinking about philosophical debates and how we live our lives and why people live their lives differently. And yeah, that could be a whole nother episode. I was going to come to the STEM STEAM because that's, for me, maybe builds it a little here, which is, you know, STEM versus STEAM versus, I think, Simon, you mentioned there's another variation of STEAM with humanity with H in there it? somewhere. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but what do you see there, Cindy, you know, in that whole debate? Is it about breaking down some of the false divisions between science and arts? Is that part of the the approach that's needed here? In my experience in working with STEM and STEAM educators, they're very, very similar. I think it's about exploration and I think it's amazing. And the, the STEAM teachers I have met and worked with are incredible thinkers and incredibly creative in coming up with ways to get their students, to give their students choices, to get them to explore things, to enjoy the learning, finding intrinsic motivation. I think STEAM is a very good connector to creativity as well as gifted education is often associated with creativity as well. So those are the two low hanging, I call them the low hanging fruit things that, you know, when I talk with teachers that are in gifted or STEAM STEM, they're like, oh yeah, I get it. I get creativity. But if I talk to a mathematics teacher, they're going to say, I don't, I don't understand the relationship. Yeah. And then I had great episodes of the podcast. In fact, we just interviewed someone, Dr. Colleen Kelly, who was a former was a former chemistry professor. And she said, you know, there's all these misconceptions that chemistry is boring and that you have to teach it with the periodic table and just memorize. And she's created all these books to help students, both young students and college students, learn chemistry in fun ways and engaging ways and in ways that make them think and remember the material versus just rote memorization, which really doesn't do anything for us. Yeah. And I often see, especially in the corporate world that we, that I work in as well, STEM gets a massive push and we need more girls into STEM, which I absolutely understand, but it's almost like the, the A is like a, a dirty word or a swear word in the middle, like, oh no, no, we don't, we don't need any of that. So I struggle to see that disconnect because for me, that's the a bit of the glue that holds that whole sequence of STEM together. And again, not knocking this is anything against the, the STEM mindset, but I think, yeah, that, that A, that creativity, that, that way of looking at the world, that way of interacting with the world and exploring, this seems to be the, the piece that is that lovely way of holding it all together. Yes. And I also think that based on the STEM teachers I've met, they're doing aspects of creativity. Yeah. It doesn't matter if there's an A and B yeah. or not. That they're being creative in the classroom and they're having their students explore their creativity. It might just be in a more scientific way, using the scientific method or understanding physics, but they're still being creative. Yeah, and I often say to the people I work with, look, if you think you're not creative, you're just labeling that creativity as something else, like it's there, but you're just not giving it a name because we go, oh, I can certainly be creative, which I think that A in it for me is that acknowledgement that, yeah, we are creative as well. So STEM is a very creative uh, process. So, Cindy, we know you're a published author of a number of books mm -hmm. around creativity, and uh, one that caught our attention is the one titled My Sandwich is a Spaceship, which is a great title. It's very eye-catching, and it's, uh, it's very funny. And so we thought for this thought experiment, uh, we wanted to share with you some other book titles, some of which are funny okay. and some of which are fake. 
Uh, we'd like you to guess which are which. Ooh, fun. Okay. <laughs> so uh, we've got some here. Now, we'll keep a tally and a score as ever. So we'll okay. see how you do at the end. I'll, I'll keep a note. Shall I start, uh, Simon, with the first one there? Yes, far yeah. away. So uh, here's the first one. So how to date vegans. True. <laughs> it's uh, it's fake. <laughs> But, no. but there you go, straight away, straight away, written. you're going, there's a gap in the market. That's good. There is a gap. There is yeah. a gap in the market. <laughs> okay. Okay. Our next one is this uh, funny or fake. How to avoid huge ships. Hmm. How to avoid huge ships. I'm going to say that's real. That is real. That is correct. That is a book by Captain John W. Trimmer. Very right, well yeah. done. Well done. That's one. You're, you've got up. You're off of uh, first base. Number three here: old tractors and the men who love them. Old tractors. Yeah. <laughs> old, tra old, old tractors, tractors and the men who love them. Oh dear! I'm going to say that's fake. It's it's true. It's it's, oh, it's true. It's, I've seen the cover. It's by a chap called Roger Welsh. There we go. And okay. He looks like and I can... he looks like he owns a tractor. Put it that way. <laughs> I wouldn't think that was a gap in the market, but okay. <laughs> on, a, on a side note, I've regularly attended the tractor rally in my wife's <laughs> village, where ah. all the uh, men will drive, or men and uh, ladies as well, uh, will drive in or on their tractors and bring them all to a big field. And ooh, like the look of that, my father-in-law has a 1940s tractor still in working condition that he uses all the time. So I thought, yeah, that could be there. <laughs> Christmas gift. Christmas gift. Now, next one, Peter the Pony and his alien friend, Bob. Peter the Pony and his alien friend, Bob. I'm going to say that's not real. That's not real. However, I am working on the manuscript for that as we speak, so Mason. may <laughs> 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 soon be true. That's quickly moving on. Uh, that's very good. Well done. That was a point, wasn't it? That was a point. Yeah, it's uh, a point. Uh, so this one here is where the mild things are. Where the mild things yeah. are? Yeah. Hmm. I'm going to say that's true. It's, no? it's fake. <laughs> uh, it's an alternative <laughs> to Morris Sendex, where the wild things are, but for younger readers. If you right? don't like things too wild for some helicopter parents, they want the mild things. <laughs> all right, next one. So long and thanks for all the fish. So long. I'm going to say that's true. That is true by the author Douglas Adams. Well oh, done. Very good, yeah. That's the follow-up to Hitchhiker's Guide, that one. Uh, this one here is, um, Alice takes a lot of drugs. That is not true. <laughs> that is, that is, is correct, but that was taken from alternative titles for Alice in Wonderland when they were brainstorming Ooh. at the beginning. So uh, that <laughs> came up for Alice in Wonderland. Next one. Anybody can be cool, but awesome takes practice. That's true. That is true. That is by the author Lorraine Patterson. Wow, very good. Two more. Um, this little piggy went to the liquor store. <laughs> it's not true. It's true. <laughs> 
What is that about? <laughs> that is by A.K. Turner. Uh, there you go. It's about uh, an alcoholic pig. <laughs> what is Look, it really about? I don't know. I'll I'll put the synopsis in the show notes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now our last one. Simon and John start a podcast which changes the world of business and lights up everyone's life. True. <laughs> no, that is actually fake. <laughs> I think we should get a point for being yeah, nice. I, yeah, yeah, I think, yeah. Right. I think that's very good, oh. actually. So uh, one, two, three, four, seven points there. That's that's a very, very respectable score. As we say, Thank you. is it as good as Michelle Obama's? Possibly not, but it's still very good, Cindy. So well done, well done. And that is funny or fake. Now we'd like to move into the, a set of questions under the umbrella of a you're not so serious business podcaster uh, advice. And we like to look through the lens of individuals or a solopreneur, teams and how they work together, and also you know, leaders and understanding that we're all leaders in some way as well. So John, first question from your good self. Yes. So looking at it through the lenses of an individual, Cindy, what can we do as individuals to make embracing curiosity, which I know you talk to quite a bit, and creative thinking? How can we make those our default settings? What are some of the things we might be able to do? So I have lots of tips around this, but the one that comes to mind right now is to look at things that are obvious to you and ask questions about them. So one of the activities I always do with students is say, okay, pick up a pencil. How many questions can you ask about a pencil? And usually they can come up with 40 questions about a pencil. And you think you've been holding this pencil in your hand for that long and there's a lot you don't know. So how do we look at those things that we see every day and ask questions and see if there are ways that we can improve on those things. So for example, recently on a personal level, my husband and I, we've had a, a toothbrush that we really like. And at one point he said, do you think this is the, we've had this toothbrush for like five years. Is this the best toothbrush that we can have? And so we looked and we're like, we could find a much nicer model, but we never stopped to question our toothbrush because, well, it worked and it worked decently well, right? But now the one that we have, we're like, wow, our teeth are shiny white now that we've got this new toothbrush. And what are the other things that we just assume are good as they are because they're what we're used to? So really taking time to ask questions about our lives from the moment we wake up, just spend some time thinking like, what could I improve about this day? Are there any systems I can build? Interested in learning more about? I think all of those things it's, it's just sort of how I live my life. From the moment I wake up, it's like, how can I wake up and say, all right, yes, today is going to be a great day. It's a Wednesday and I love Wednesdays. Actually, it's a Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> Wednesday. Yeah, yeah, nearly there. A Wednesday. <laughs> so, and then really looking at your day to say, how can I improve on today? And what are all the things that I can ask when things aren't going the way that I want them to? So oftentimes we don't question our assumptions and it's something I work on with teachers and students and my own children is when something isn't working, well, have you asked about it? Mm. So for example, my son was doing an assignment the other day and he said, I just wish I could, I didn't have to hand write this. I wish I could just do it on the computer. And I said, well, did you ask if you could do it on the computer? And he said, no, but she said we had to handwrite it. And I said, well, ask her if you can question that assumption. 
So he went back and he came back like two minutes later. He's like, she already responded and I can do it on a computer. And sometimes I think it's just a matter of asking questions to get what we want. And we're too afraid to ask those questions. And I don't think we need to be. I was going to say, in terms of individuals in organizations, Cindy, it would be Mm -hmm. that same encouragement, wouldn't it? To be able to step into the workplace and go, what in front of me here is obvious that I've come to time and time again over many years that I can just sit and go, okay, question the obvious, question the assumptions that might be at play. That's right. So, you know, you're sitting at your desk and you think, what am I doing today? Is that what I should be doing? You know, and really questioning yourself because sometimes we get into that sort of mode of this is what I do every day, but is that what you have to do? Mm. Could it look differently? Are there things that you're doing in your job that you could give to someone else to do? Have you got any thought to, just as a follow-on to that, Cindy, about habits in all of this? In what way do you try to talk to forming habits that allow these kind of assumption-busting questions that one might ask just to be the the thing that, again, is the default? How can that help? How can habits help? Yeah. And do you talk about that in terms of forming habits to get people into it so it becomes a default? I think habits are really helpful and useful. And I'm sort of a productivity junkie as much as I am a plant lover. I'm also a productivity lover. Um, So I'm always looking at productivity hacks. And obviously, I've read every book that you can imagine on productivity, including the habits book. What is that one called? Um, Atomic Habits. Atomic Habits, which I loved. And essentially, it's about sequencing your day. So you you get up, you step out of bed, you put on your slippers, you walk to the bathroom, you brush your teeth. And I actually had things on my mirror wall that said, brush your teeth, put on your contacts, take a shower. And I had a visitor in my house and she walked into my bathroom and she said, do you really need a post-it for that? What the hell? And I said, well, (laughs) I'm I'm really just trying to create these habits so that they're all sequenced. But then stopping to say, is this the way that the day should go? Is this working for me? Or when there's a disconnect for some reason or your energy is low and you say, why is my energy low right now? And as I was preparing for this afternoon and it's three o'clock here in Buffalo, in Grand Island, New York, And I was preparing and I was thinking, I might need a nap because I talking for an hour and a half and then I've got an an interview for myself later on this evening for a podcast that I'm hosting. So I thought I really need some time. So what do I need in this moment to get through the rest of the day? So really stopping to say, okay, look at this day. What do I need to improve on to make it a really effective day for me? And it was, I need a nap before I go into this. And I, I've read a quote from, uh, uh, I forget who it was, from some uh, type of innovator, if that's the right way to say it. He said, look, building on this, he said, organizations don't need to innovate. You just need to stop doing dumb stuff. He said, if you're curious enough to look at the things you're doing and cut out all the dumb stuff, he said, your profits will skyrocket. So <laughs> forget innovation, forget new, just cut out the dumb stuff, which comes back to that questioning piece uh, again as well. Now, I'm also going to think about my toothbrush very differently. I'm already sort of thinking, okay, I'm going to get up. I'm going to I'll, I'll tell you what I'm curious about now, Simon. I'm curious about those post-its or those little notes behind Cindy's head. <laughs> They're just saying, talk to Simon, look at the camera, <laughs> eat, some, eat some lunch. What are they? I can't see them, Cindy. <laughs> they, the post-its behind my head are actually cards that 
have been written by educators we've worked with uh, in terms of how they bring creativity into the classroom. Oh, wow. Nice. So those are just all suggestions. So I keep them mm-hmm. up there when I need a little inspiration. Good stuff. All right. I, I like that. Next to brush teeth. Now, into the team question, I, I was also noting noticing on your curiosity to create page, you've got this wonderful create model. And part of that is around teams. And you've got a piece called the Team Transformer. And mm-hmm. part of that is how can we build strong, creative, collaborative teams with contagious energy and I thought wow that sounds a great question so I think that's a great question for this team section how do we do that sure so first I want to mention that that model the create model was developed by Katie Trowbridge who is our president at Curiosity to Create so she's been developing that model for the last few years and that model helps educators bring creativity into the classroom. So part of that is around the team transformer. In terms of how you can build better teams and transform your teams, I think really understanding and listening when you have a difference of opinions and being open-minded, I think we are so quick to judge other people's ideas and we're quick to judge our own ideas. And the challenge with that is if I come to you and I say, okay, Simon, John, I'm going to pitch an idea to you. And it's every podcast, you should give away a big jar of Play-Doh. And you said, no, we're not doing that. It's going to cost too much. It's going, you know, the shipping will cost too much. We've tried that before. We've tried sending things before that doesn't work. I'm never going to come to you again with a new idea. Mm-hmm. And if we want our teams to really be creative and to work collaboratively together, we have to give them that space. So it's okay if initially you think, oh, I don't really agree with sending big jars of Play-Doh to all of our, our listeners. But what if you were just to take a moment and get curious? Tell me more. Why do you think we should bring play? Why do you think we should send Play-Doh to all of our listeners? What benefit do you think that would bring them? And I said, oh, I think they would feel really connected to you and, and you could do, have them do little Play-Doh activities. And you go, oh, you know, I don't really, we can't really send them Play-Doh, but we could send them a small block and that small block could be moldable. And that's something cheap we could send them. And by just listening to other people's ideas and acknowledging them, they're going to feel heard and they're going to feel like they're safe to share their other new ideas with you. So I think in terms of teams and working together in businesses, we have to make sure that we are not quick to judge. Just on that note, Cindy, thinking back to this, this is where creative thinking gets supercharged almost. It has to mm-hmm. happen together in a collaborative way, doesn't it? We, we can teach people to be creative thinkers but unless we yes. marry that with that ability to work with other people and and then do that together, that actually is is that's where the magic happens to some degree. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That is where the magic happens. And I think that there's a lot of people out there that get very protective over the creative ideas. Mm. And I understand. I mean, I can understand like people's protectiveness over their ideas. But really, the magic does happen in collaboration because. If I'm sitting here by myself and I'm building something, it's going to be good. But if the three of us were to build something, it's gonna, it has the potential to be three times as good. Are the education systems better at bringing children, students, learners together to learn some of that collaborative type skills as well? Or is that another piece that's missing here that you <laughs> another go? Another piece of the puzzle. Hey, yeah, I think yeah. it's, it's okay. very challenging. 
it's very challenging. And there's a lot of dynamics around that. So you have the student that that's not engaged at all and you put them with a star student and all of a sudden the star student's like, I'm doing all the work, this isn't fair. And then having to work through that. So there's a lot of dynamics that come in working collaboratively in groups in both education and in, in the real world. I mean, we all know that working in professional careers. Now, from a leadership perspective, what can leaders in a corporate environment use from the way you enable a teacher to weave creative thinking into their organization or some of the other things you may you bring to life? How can leaders bring this in? I think the most important thing that leaders can do is really give the space for new ideas from their the members in their organization. So going back to this keeping open, being curious, helping to see it from different perspectives. I mean, even just giving that space, I'll, I'll give you an example. So in one of the schools I worked with, I said, you should have an ideas box and everyone in the whole community can put ideas in the ideas box. And they're, they're anonymous ideas. So how can we, how might we improve the school? And this can come from the students. It can come from the parents. It can come from the teachers. It can come from the community members. And every week you, you go through and you see if there's anything interesting in there. Because just giving people the space to share their ideas, you never know when you're going to have a, a winning idea, right? And so I think as a leader, if you can do that, you're going to be more innovative as an organization because people are more likely to share their ideas with you. And what about creating a space for this as well? Because I think often we create, uh, we talk about that environment and that culture and uh, there's so much uh, that's written on this as well and explored. How might leaders create that space as well? Is there anything else they can do to make people feel comfortable or actually understand they are creative or, or that's the important part of their role? Are you talking psychological environment or physical environment? Uh, I'm going to go psychological. Okay. So the most important thing in the psychological research around creativity is that there's trust and openness. So if you have a trusting relationship with your leader, then you're more likely to share new ideas with them, right? And I think when we can create that psychological safety, then we are more likely to share ideas. Now, there's a researcher named Jörn Ekvall. He's no longer with us either. He's He was a German researcher, but he looked at these 10 dimensions of the creative environment in an organization. So he looked at things like debate and being able to debate new ideas. So not conflict where it gets emotionally charged, but actual, I see it this way. No, I see it this way. And this is why, and I see it this way, but this is why. Um, he looked at playfulness and humor. He looked at risk take an environment where you could take risk risks, an environment in which there's challenge and emotional involvement within the organization. So you have that emotional relationship to really want to work hard you know, that you have that intrinsic motivation when you walk in to say, I really want to do a good job today. So if you can build those sorts of things in your organization, they're going to be better off in terms of innovation. Now, Cindy, you have an amazing podcast fueling creativity in education and it's doing very, very well. Now you've done how many episodes? Uh-oh. We, we've done 70 interviews and I think we've done 110 episodes. Okay. Now, if we can narrow that down, what's two or three key things in terms of messaging or themes or insights that have come out of those 110 episodes? 
Sure. So we have an actual listen and learn series if people are interested in digging into each of these. But we actually did a little qualitative piece around the tips because we ask all of our interviewees three tips that they would provide to educators to bring creativity to the classroom. And we came out with 10 tips. So we did a whole listen and learn series around these 10 tips. So I'll share two of them now. One is to model creative behavior. So if you want your employees or your students to be creative, then you have to model those behaviors to them. So you have to say, I'm going to take a risk on this. I want you to take a risk with me. I'm going to get curious on this. I want you to get curious as well. I made a mistake today and here's what I'm doing to work through that mistake. So that is a big, big piece in both leadership and in teaching. And another one is to initiate discussions on creativity. So talk with people about creativity. I mean, we have been talking about creativity and how we have spoken with other people and they don't really understand what creativity is. So have those discussions with people about what creativity looks like in your organization, whatever it might be. So if you're in a business organization and you believe creativity is important, why is it important to you? What do you need to do to build your creativity skill set as individuals and as an organization? So I think having those discussions is really essential. Cindy, changing tack slightly now, what's one thing you yes. couldn't do without in your life right at the moment? One thing I couldn't do without a person or... Take your pick. Whatever that may be, yeah. So I would say my husband. He is the kindest, sweetest person on the planet. And he says, I always say he's my rock. And he says, I'm his star. So we're rock stars together. <laughs> and, boom, boom. <laughs> and his name is Andy and I'm Cindy. So we're candy. So it's it's just sweet. So, uh, my it's so nice. Yeah. yeah, so nice. Is he in the room? <laughs> so you make you say that, didn't he? He's oh, not. Okay. No, he's not in the room. Actually, he's not here. And he's British, by the way. So I get to go to London a lot. Okay. We are building the Occupational Philosopher's Manigesto. What one mm -hmm. thing of all your learning do you think should be included? I think the one thing I would say needs to be included is to keep open to novelty. Because when you're open to novelty, whatever that looks like, whether it be food or ideas or experiences, you never know the magic that will happen in doing that. What book should we be reading right now? Oh, I am such a lover of books. I always have four books happening at the same time. Hmm. Let me pick one. Just give me one second to look at my shelf. What are my recent ones? The one book I would recommend that you should be reading right now is Orbiting the Giant Hairball. <laughs> Fake or real? Oh. <laughs> I'm going to go, that's real, and you're going to give us the author, and we're going to put it in the show notes. <laughs> that is real, and that is Gordon McKenzie. Okay. And it's the one book that I introduce people to creativity with. Oh, okay. Love Fantastic. It. I'll put that on my list as well. Now, let's imagine it's in the later years of your life. You've had a very fulfilling life and you're being taken to your retirement home. You're taken into the dining area. Everyone looks up. How would you like to be introduced at your retirement home? Here's Cindy. She's... Well, first of all, I would be Dr. Burnett, um, Dr. Cindy Burnett. And that's a real struggle for me. And I'll tell you why, because I got my doctorate in 2010 and I always been known as Cindy. I'm very informal. I love my students to call me Cindy, 
but I was doing a panel a few years ago and I was with all men who were all doctors and they introduced all the men as doctor, doctor, doctor. And they got to me and they said, Cindy. And I was, I was totally fine with it. I didn't even notice really. And then I had a group of young women come up to me and they said, why did you allow that? And I said, allow what? And they said, why weren't you called Dr. Burnett? Everyone else was called, all the men were called doctor. You also have been awarded a doctor. And they said, you need to do better for us. And that was a huge wake up call for me because like I said, I don't care if people call me Dr. Burnett, but I want our women coming up, our up and coming academics to feel comfortable being doctor and not to feel bad about being called doctor. So I will be called Dr. Burnett, Dr. Cindy Burnett. And then what, okay, following and on then from that. They will call me, then you, they will say, she was a creativity and education specialist who helped impact the lives of hundreds of educators and make learning more engaging and fun. And she has an amazing family that support her and she adores and has lived the best life she could. They've all fallen asleep by now, Cindy. Or they just said, where are my pills? What are you up to next, Cindy? What's happening next for you? So I actually have a new book coming out called Infusing Creativity into the College Curriculum, which essentially shows the same creative thinking skills and how they can be brought into higher ed, because I think higher ed is in a huge state of challenge as well, mm. giving the rise of things like open courses and technology and is it worth the investment? And I think we need to do more to make our students more creative and to make learning more engaging. We don't need to be the sage on the stage anymore. We're in 2020, almost 2024. So that's the next book that will be out hopefully by the end of this year. Fantastic. Now, where can we find you, connect with you, buy you virtual drinks, wherever that may be? So where are your socials, websites, and all of those different things? So the best way to stay in touch with me or to learn more about my work is through LinkedIn. I love posting on LinkedIn. I'm also on, I have a professional page on Facebook, on Twitter, although with Twitter, even though I have almost 100,000 followers, I rarely use Twitter anymore because I just find it to be a challenging platform. Recently, I don't know why. <laughs> and I'm going to get curious about that one and then look at our Creative Thinking Network, which is a new network that we've created for educators to join us. And we sort of do coaching. We do um, monthly webinars. We've got online lessons, creative lessons, and then we do monthly meetups with our teachers. So that's a great place. If you want to talk with us, come and join us there. Cindy, it's been an absolute pleasure. I've got another hour so questions to ask, but I'm going to have to put those to one side and save that for another show. Or if you come to London, then hopefully you might be able to catch you. If you're coming to some event, please do give us a shout. Love to be able to okay. chat some more. It'd be great. Thank you. Yeah. And Cindy, same for me. Thank you so much for sharing your insight. And I always feel overawed by the knowledge of our, <laughs> the knowledge of our guests and also your enthusiasm for what you do. And your wonderful smile, and I could tell it when you just jumped on, you went, hey, and I thought, what a great uh, person is a champion of creativity in schools and in education and academia as well. So, look, thanks so much for sharing all your knowledge and insight, and hopefully we get the chance to uh, chat again. All right. Thanks so much for having me.
John, what a great guest Cindy was. As always, you like to distill some of the key takeouts. What were yours? Well, as ever, lots to choose from. Early on, I think that we got into, which is about the importance of creative thinking and how she's trying to bring this into the curriculum and have it something that students become very adept at. And she mentioned that it was about really preparing them for a future which was going to have massive change. I mean, we talk about this all the time, as you talk about VUCA and we talk about how there's constant change and continuous change and the pace of change is getting faster and faster. And all of that is true. So the critical thinking, I think, is a an ability to respond to that. So she talked about it's almost a means to an end that creative thinking, creative problem solving is going to allow the next generation coming through to be able to better navigate and manage change. So that was quite interesting that she framed it that way early on. And then, obviously, for me, I was drawn to the fact that very, very much for individuals, how we might sort of embrace curiosity is just to stop and ask questions and challenge assumptions and look at the obvious, which I thought was quite nice as well. Look at the obvious and then ask the questions, because I think that's that thing that you become easily blind to is the obvious, the things you see day in, day out. So there were a couple of things that sort of got me going. How about you? I like the distinction between creative thinking versus creative problem solving Mm. and her way of framing it was problem solving, creative problem solving is a process that can be taught and followed. However, it's nothing without that creative thinking around it. And I think in the corporate world, you would understand this. We have a framework, we have a process, We and someone will come out with, as in my, my book, I've got a framework for innovation. However, it's just a framework, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. So it's a guide rather than, so those creative thinking skills, which you spoke about, that's the way of navigating the framework. Uh, I also liked just that asking come back for homework with 10 questions instead of 10 answers. So I appreciate taking that inquiry and being curious. And I love this one around, as we always hear, leaders modeling creative behaviors. So if you want people to drive, if you want that behavior to exist in your organization, that's the thing you have to model, which is a little space of ambiguity for leaders as well, because you you might not always get everything right, but saying that is okay. Yeah. And uh, one of the things I noted as well is Cindy didn't talk too much to failure. We didn't ask a question around that. And there was, an op- there was a potential question that we did want to ask about that. But she did talk about risk. And in the same way that she talked about yeah. embracing curiosity, she said that obviously there is a need in all of this to be able to embrace risk to some degree as well. So I thought that was just another way to look at it rather than talking about experimentation and failure. It's just that tolerance, that attitude to risk needs to be different as well if you're going to go into that space of creative thinking, creative problem solving. And one of my highlights from this, this was actually you when she was talking about all the things you need in tennis. And you said, instead of saying hand-eye coordination, you said eyeball coordination. (laughs) So I'm thinking, (laughs) like your eyes, like (laughs) one's pointed left and one's pointed right. I need good eyeball coordination. (laughs) I refer to my early answer, Malud, which is I'm not very good at tennis. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I need good eyeball coordination. <laughs> so uh, that was a little highlight for me. I didn't have the chance to jump in, but <laughs> I've, I've kept it written down for the whole episode. Thanks for bringing it up. Put it in the show notes. Fill your boots. 
<laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm gonna ask chat gpt what's eyeball coordination today and see see what we come back with so john that brings us to the end of the episode and look we always ask leave a review and there has been lots of reviews so thank you yeah. that is great because it helps people know about the podcast more and the more reviews the more people more, the more eyeballs, the more eyeball coordination there is on our podcast and earballs as well while we're, we're going there. <laughs> but So tell your friends, if you do get the chance, leave a review. Or as always, you can uh, get in contact, occupationalphilosophers at gmail.com. We have a pretty snazzy website. We have all our episodes, a bit of information about John and myself, what we do outside of this, which we'll probably share a little bit more in the next few weeks. But when you leave here today, when you're in the evening, the daytime, lunchtime, wherever it may be, what do we want people we to We want do? them to stay curious. We want them to make stuff. We want them to have fun. We want them to play more. But most importantly, when they leave this, listening to this podcast today, Simon, we want them to go outside and date life with vigor, passion, and enjoyment.